Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. We hope the Ringer can provide you entertainment and companionship during this time. So as always, feel free to check out theringer.com, where we're still covering the latest in sports, pop culture, tech, and media. And the Ringer's YouTube channel can provide endless amounts of entertainment. You can find that at youtube.com slash the ringer. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he just got done reading the Virginia monologues. It's Andy Greenwald. Wait, wait, what happened in Virginia? It's what they uh, call the vagina monologues in the book club. Oh, right. Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu, my guy. A show I watched last night and yeah, clearly... Yeah, I, I had to explain my own intro because that's where we're at. Day whatever. Here. Can I can I tell you what I thought you were saying? I for instantly assumed that the Virginia monologues was a piece of failed legislation James Madison introduced in the Continental Congress to suspend presidential elections, <laughs> and that like it was a trending topic. Oh yeah, dude, uh, the trending topics right now are really really scary. Yeah, don't. By the way, I don't know if I've been vague about this in our previous podcast. Don't look at Twitter. Stop it. Stop doing it. I'm sorry if you are a Twitter shareholder, but you're doing fine. Uh, don't look at it. It's not helping. It's mostly just that like people will like, it's like Allen Iverson was trending today. And I was like, oh my God, what happened to Allen Iverson? <laughs> yeah. And it's just that like Slam put a tweet up of like, remember when Allen Iverson did this 20 years ago? Sick. And I was just like, oh my God, how did that trend in this world? That seems helpful. That seems like good content right now. How you doing, friend? How you doing over there? You know, peaks and valleys, I would say. I think that um, for the most part, I'm doing well. I've been trying to get out and get some walks in. Um, I've been listening to a lot of rap. Been digging deep in the crates uh, on DJ Drama Gangster Grills mixtapes. Uh, are are those available somewhere, or do you still have your your cassettes? I have a bunch. No, not I never had cassettes. They were all on on CDs, but they're all pretty much available on Dat Piff. Oh sure, yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Dat Piff. I don't think I've been there since uh, since Thug Motivation, the prequel 103 or whatever came out. Yeah, but, but I'm I was glad listening to the Pharrell one recently, and I was listening to uh, Fabulous's There Is No Competition too. So. I, I bring this up because I, I I think I it, it's coming out this week. I went on on Caramonica's podcast on the Times to nice. talk a little bit about what I'm listening to. So I've been walking around listening to rap, keeping my distance uh, from fellow heads. I just kind of if I see a guy across the street, I, I just go, "Hey, I'm listening to Gangster Grills," <laughs> <laughs> and uh-huh. it's great for social distancing because people just scurry away. You should just like shout DJ drama drops at people and see yeah. if they respond. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, um, you know, first of all, a hearty hello and respectful elbow bump to all of our listeners who are going, going through this. I'm glad to know we're all kind of going through this very strange time together and that hopefully for many of us, you know, we're fortunate enough that, that the isolation and the anxiety and the Twitter trending topics are our greatest uh, discomfort at this particular moment. I want to just sort of speak up for the other part of society who is finding uh, social dis- distancing to be the least isolating time of their lives because I'm coming to you live from the Little House on the Prairie homeschool. That's right. 
that I am a principal and sole employee of. So I have to say that uh, as someone who generally, you know, prior to the writer's room or in production, works a solo beat, you know, whether, whether you know, we're at a desk with a computer writing things. This is real, uh, real social for me over here right now. So I wanted to ask you, I imagine that like day one starts and you yeah. were like, I am shaping a young person's mind. Mm-hmm. I, I am mm-hmm. ready mm-hmm. to stand and deliver. And then day four or five comes along. I don't know if I, I sent you that tweet. Uh, did I send you this tweet where it's like everybody, I can't remember who's, who said it, but it was like basically a joke where it was like everybody who's homeschooling right now and taking pictures of their cool crafts projects Holler at me on day five when your kid is binge watching The Punisher. <laughs> <laughs> you thank you for not sending that. Yeah, to me. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that I, I appreciated the stand and deliver reference because on day one, the, the, the writer I, of that joke was named Todd Levine or Todd Levine. I, I definitely thought of myself as kind of a, a, a gringo Jaime Escalante. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think he and I have a lot of things in common. We were our stories were both told in Los Angeles. That's the end of our similarities. Have you been doing math by, with, by, your, with your kids? Yeah, by the end of the day, I would say my vibe was more like Howard Hessman in uh, Head of the Class, <laughs> which is a reference that I feel not confident that people are going to get. But uh, you know, kind of kind of a chill, chill guy, kind of a hanging with Mister Cooper, if you will. I think I think we're trending downward. Those you know you know that Howard Hessman and hanging with Mr. Cooper are different guys. Yeah, I I, I was updating sure. it on the fly from an 80s to a 90s and then I can't go past that. I imagine I think that I know vaguely that there was a uh a warmly considered teacher character on that Boy Meets World show that I never engaged with. So maybe that's your reference for what a what a great job I'm doing. <laughs> Well, if things keep going but, this way, I'm going to start yeah. offering, like, I'll just basically stand out on my porch and start uh, doing open English classes for Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> I'm just like, look, guys, if you want to stand six feet apart and just sort of talk about. I, I, I it's different. That's yeah. pretty much all I got to say. It's very, very different around here. I would, I would say that, you know, I, I did, uh. I did have to to get out of the house briefly the other evening to do the final sound mix of the last episode of Briar Patch, which was surreal and bittersweet and done with a great deal of distance, uh, which was sad because I wanted to be hugging and backslapping and toasting with all the mixers who made this happen. And I, I wasn't able to do that, but I was so grateful for their work. And uh, I think that was around the time when my wife, who's running a flourishing legal practice from the same room that I'm podcasting out of right now, said, it's a good thing your job is done. It's done? Like, yeah, I was like, you know, theoretically, you know, there are other projects that I could be working on and, you know, other stuff that I'm developing. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> here, on the, here, here on the frontier, uh, you know, there are those who do. And those, and who, those who can't do, there are those who teach. And that's, that's me. Also, I did want to, to tell you, because I don't think we've discussed this, you know, because I am like all writers or freelancers or whatever category we're in, an inveterate procrastinator, I do actually owe stuff on other projects that I'm doing. And I decided a couple of weeks ago that the, the real impediment to getting this done was a dedicated workspace. Mm-hmm. Because when I was in post, I was just sitting on couches in Gina's edit bay or Joe or Segan's edit bay. I know where to actually sort of be. And I believe longtime listeners of the serialized drama known, known as this podcast know that while I was in Albuquerque, 
daddy's home office became a playroom. <laughs> so, so I was like, okay, so what I need most is an office space. And I think you knew that I was doing this. And so, you know, I, I did due diligence and I, you know, I, I put on my, my, my big boy boots and I, I rented an office for myself. And then I moved my desk and all of my working belongings into it. <laughs> and uh, that was last week. And now you're in a child's chair <laughs> with a Lenovo, just kind of being like, interior, scene one. Saying, well, the, the problem here, darling, is that the, the, the goose only has two legs, but all the other animals in the math problem bring four to the party. So that's how we end up with 28 legs total scene at the zoo. So, you know, we're keeping it moving. I am finding that the, you know, obviously I'm, I'm isolated here to, to the extent that everybody is. I'm here with my wife. Um, but the, you know, the overall algebraic equation of my day is having yeah. a huge impact on how I react to stuff I watch at night. So last night, my wife and I, like, we, we had dinner. We... We had some drinks. We were just trying to get through it. And uh, it was just like, all right, let's time. It's time. Let's watch Survivor. And I reacted to Survivor last night yeah. as if it was the Eagles winning the Super Bowl six times while smoking straight crystal blue persuasion. Like, I have not been that excited <laughs> for the end of a competition I, I, it, since, since the day that, that, that the Eagles beat Tom Brady and the Patriots. Was it because... Because I have nothing else. You, There's nothing else okay. to cheer for or think about or like, you know, oh, they won, they lost. It was like literally watching that last night was the high. Because that's what people are saying, right? It's like, I'm now going for walks. And when I take a walk, I, the jogger endorphin kicks in. Yes. And so that's what it was like watching Survivor, but for for all of the sports in the world. Yes. Well, I also, I'm glad it's just that. I was worried that you were just like existentially elated that someone had survived like the final person was revealed no i was like i was getting completely barbaric i was like yes she cut her throat <laughs> i mean i got I, I i i gotta say this i know you're hearing this everywhere people who listen to this podcast but assuming you know we're all still allowed to do this which we are go outside stay away from people go for a walk go for a run your your boy jogged four miles yesterday and Afterwards, I was like, should I donate some blood? Like, there's some <laughs> antibodies in here that definitely, <laughs> definitely could work. Yeah. Like, I, I'm sure that somebody could do something with this because this feels great. <laughs> I'm just going to do it right now. And if somebody needs it, I'll have it. And, and then I got, I got, I got vials. I got room in the freezer. And then I got a text from Chris just listing the trending topics on Twitter and sent me back into a spiral. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. Do we talk about the other thing that you did that you panicked did that I'm very excited to talk about in a public forum? I, I but I have to keep my voice down if I'm going to talk <laughs> about that, it. Is that real? Well, I mean, she knows. Okay, so here's the thing. <laughs> I'm so that nothing has made me happy during this difficult time, other aside from this. I everybody who listens to this podcast knows that I love my wife. Okay, there's no question, and I'd do anything for her. But a couple of days ago maybe about a week ago, it seemed as if my wife might be going away for a while to go visit her her mother. And so I was contemplating a very long time alone. And in a f- basically a sort of fit, you know, like a, I was a fit of peak, I logged on 
that your boy may have bought a PS4. <laughs> I'm so happy. Which is not something that's like, it's not like I can't have that. You know what I mean? Like, I'm an adult. I can make these decisions for myself. But it was more of a like wartime decision. You know what I mean? Like, if alone yes. for months on end, what should I spend my time doing? I could read all the books that I haven't read yet. I could write that screenplay. Uh, but I also could lead multiple European soccer clubs to glory playing <laughs> FIFA 20 for upwards of 78 seasons, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a matter of weeks. So I, 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 I got all this stuff anticipating a certain kind of lifestyle. Yes. And now it's becoming apparent that that might, I may have, may have left the gate a little early. <laughs> I, I, I want to say, and I mean this sincerely, and I know I'm not the only person, certainly not the only Daddington listening to this podcast or Mommington. You know in prison movies when someone gets out? Yeah. And all the other prisoners, even the ones who threatened that first prisoner on the yard on day one. They have like a one tear rolling down their eye and they just like, like give them a Like the Native clap. American in that pollution commercial. And they just clap. Because someone got out. And if someone could get out and run free, then there's chance for everyone. And that's how I felt when you told me that you had bought a video game system. <laughs> I will likely never play a video game again for the rest of my life. But the thought of you doing it, Chris, gave me wings. And, <laughs> and I think listeners should know, they're not surprised by this, I bet, but you and I did some work on like FIFA 04 or 05. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had some, some, some rugged campaigns you know, there were, there were some ups and downs in the Bundesliga. And I mean that in all senses. <laughs> we also played a soccer video game. <laughs> but that was fun. That was so exciting to me. I love it. The reason why I even did this was because yeah. Andy and I were texting a couple of days ago. And I promise we're going to get to TV. We're going to talk about Better Call Saul. We're going to talk about Little Fires Everywhere. And we're going to talk about Briar Patch. But just to end on this anecdote, the, you know, you wind up kind of sitting around thinking about like, good times you've had, not because you're not going to have any going forward, but they kind of just, they get you through. You know what I mean? Like you just kind of have these, these pleasant memories. And I was thinking about a time in 2000 in Brooklyn when you and me and our buddy Sean Howe were in Sean's apartment above Yummy Taco on Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn playing yep. Perfect Dark on the yep. N64 and listening to The W by Wu-Tang Clan. Which had just been released. Yeah. Or I think actually and, may have, we may have had an advanced copy of. Oh, that's probably right. We probably had a review copy of it. And uh, <laughs> was that the last night of our youth? <laughs> that might have been. It might have been. Oh, man. I, so, yeah, I just was thinking about that night. And I was like, that was pretty dope. And while Andy and Sean won't be able to come over and play games with me, maybe I should try to recreate that for myself. What's amazing about that night is I remember leaving that apartment with you at like 2.30 in the morning and saying, boy, that was a fun Friday night. We should do that all the time. And <laughs> reader, we literally never did it again. That was 20 years ago. So, uh, Well, you could come on over after all this is done and play some Red Dead Redemption with me. Um, we're, let's we're get in. Here. You guys, you want to talk about Saul? You don't want to talk about Low Fires first? Let's talk TV, we, where, wherever you want to go. Yeah, well, uh, let's talk about Better Call Saul because I think that that is, we've, we've kind of done every episode and we are obviously so locked into that show right now. And uh, this is a great episode, um, kind of a classic Saul episode that features a real how to, 
you know, um, mechanical montage of like how Jimmy is able to shape the world around him by using every little bit of the legal system and beyond to get his way. And I thought it was a particularly good Ray Seahorn episode, which I don't know how much more we can really sing her praises, but she's really, really great this this season. And uh, her performance in this episode where she's like imitating her boss was particularly awesome. <laughs> I guess, um, you know, this is a mid-season point for the show but pretty much. And I, I guess I wanted to ask you how you felt about the the sort of distance between the two major plot points, because I know we've talked about it all being one show, but obviously Mike is down in Mexico in this sort of weird purgatory and Gus finally visits him at the end of the episode. But these, even though Mike and Jimmy talk on the phone in this episode, we still have like some distance between the two. Is it quarantine me or is it to the watch barstool edition to say that even just objectively, is it weird how attractive Kim was while imitating her boss, Kevin? No, it's, I mean, it's a totally normal thing <laughs> to say, I think. I, I think that, like, it's the kind of thing maybe you don't give yourself time to notice when you're right. not self-social distancing. I was like, wow. Is it's that the kind of type? thing where, like, it's the same kind of, it's basically your version of me being like, it's time to buy a PS4. I guess so. I'm like, well, I, I guess this is what I like. I didn't know. I didn't know, but a couple days of being a teacher, <laughs> that's where I'm at. Um, well, I wanted to start with one thing, which is your point about like the, the, the sort of granular, detail-driven storytelling that the Breaking Bad universe does so well, and especially as it's applied to Jimmy slash Saul. And, you know, a lot of the conversation comparing Breaking Bad to Better Call Saul, including the conversations we have about it, um, tend to go tend to express the relationship between the two shows as one of greater specialization or articulation. That Breaking Bad was one thing and Better Call Saul is even more delicate. It's painting a masterpiece, but now it's not building a ship in a bottle. It's painting something on a grain of rice. This was an example of how the show, the, sh- the two shows have a great deal in common, not obviously just in terms of cast and creative team, but in terms of what they want to say about their protagonist, because this was an episode, and, I, and I'm so grateful we got one of these. We, we get them every so often, and they, they tend to be a little broader in some ways in terms of the solemnness of it or a little bit more comic, which I think is welcome. Um, but this was an example of Jimmy being Walter White-esque in that in his previous incarnation, he was uh, restrained, not just restrained, but constrained and held back from being his greatest self. Now that he's Saul, much like Walter became Heisenberg, he is free to paint his masterpiece. He's free to be a genius in the particularly crooked medium in which he excels, right? And so that's the thing that the show has always done so well. It's that while these characters quite literally break bad, it fills them with a joy and a freedom and that they're being their truest selves, there is no hesitation, you know? And so when Kim forces that conf- confrontation, that public confrontation... Uh, with, with Dennis Boutsikaris, yeah. Dennis Boutsikaris' yeah. character, I'm always forgetting the name of. It's either Robert or Richard or something like that, yeah. When she was back in her office recovering from what just happened, I was locked in on her, hoping she would go back into that Texas accent. But beyond that... 
assuming that, you know, just sort of feeling empathy for that enormous anxiety she was feeling. And doesn't she feel nauseous? Doesn't she feel... But the truth is, the thing that binds her and Jimmy is they kind of feel most alive when they're like free soloing, right? There's something out there when yeah. they're not constrained by society. And that is heady and intoxicating and kind of wild. I think in the same way that you're bringing up the idea of Jimmy in relationship to Walter White, you can look at the relation, the central relationship of Better Call Saul in relation to Skylar and Walter and mm-hmm. the amount of... You know, I think that Skylar was a really complicated character who was really uh, unfairly treated by like the discourse around the show by the end of the show. But I think that part of the reason why the Jimmy-Kim relationship is so fascinating is it's not really breaking bad. It's like these people are already breaking a little bit. And they each have... I feel like you can really watch the chess match, but also the giving in to, to subtle addictions almost to the thrills of being other people. And that that's what Kim Kim kind of swinging back and forth between working for Tucum Carry or doing pro bono work and knowing that Jimmy is kind of the on-ramp to victory in both of those worlds, that Jimmy's mm-hmm. way ultimately gets results. But if Kim is concerned with feeling good when she gets home at the end of the day, no matter what, while she's with Jimmy or while she lives in the world that Jimmy creates, I don't know if that's possible. You know, and so she's kind of really pushing the limits right now where it's hard to see where the con ends and real life begins with the two of them. But it's it's a different kind of central relationship than Breaking Bad had. I think there's no question, it's a great point to bring up, and I think there's no question that the Kim-Jimmy relationship is a considered corrective to the Skylar and Walt relationship. And in the way that they treat Kim as a uh, with her agency, with her willingness to be a part of things, with her own complexity, she is never scolding him. You know, she has she has her own business quite literally, and her reasons for continuing to stay with him are quite complicated. But they're also related to the fact that one of the crucial differences I think between the two shows is that both our principal characters here are already broken. I mean, they were broken from the beginning, as we learned from Kim's backstory. And certainly, as we we know from Jimmy's backstory and his relationship with everyone, both of them have been trying to be good and trying to behave in an appropriate way and bend themselves into the systems that they felt would give them approval or security or whatever the thing was. And and that mask is slipping, right? It just doesn't yeah. fit. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know what actually is one of my favorite things about this past episode? And it, it really, I started thinking about previous episodes through this lens is how they show off the state of their relationship in the little actions that they have around the house. Like, if Kim is wary of Jimmy, then their meals and their discussions about what they're going to eat for dinner or what they might watch for a movie or where they might move Mm -hmm. eventually are really tense. Like, Kim is very withholding with... You know, when he's like, oh, do you want to watch After Hours? And she's just like, that's one of my favorites, but, um, you know, I might be busy. And when they're really rolling, when they have a scheme going and Jimmy's got all the tubs out and everything and, and they've kind of figured something out, obviously, like, they slept together. Obviously, like, there's just like a little bit more like, let's have a beer. There's a lot more domestic gestures to one another that are much warmer. And I, I just think that it's a detail that I don't really notice a lot of other shows taking into consideration where if you're going to return to the same set where you're going to have Jimmy and Kim in that apartment, the behavior needs to match the emotional content of the moment. Mm-hmm. And 
it's it's such a brilliant, subtle. They don't even need to have it in there, but if you're watching, it actually really makes their relationship that much more three dimensional and layered. I agree, and I would also say about this episode, which overall I just thought was a treat. Really enjoyed it. Once again, as you said a moment ago, the show is, but not once again. The show continues to be bifurcated. I mean, even to the point where Jimmy needed uh, Mike and couldn't get him and found right. Mr. X instead. And that was a really funny scene in the back of the nail salon. But it worked particularly because the show is giving us on two tracks the two things that it's been excelling at providing. One is what's going on with, with Kim and the, cur- the sort of current plot of the show, which is, you know, yes, Jimmy's becoming Saul. Jimmy did become Saul. I think many of us who are invested in the original content of the show are very much invested in Kim at this point as, as, the, as the main character of our interest. The Mike plot on a separate track was almost entirely backfilling Breaking Bad story and Breaking Bad plot. Yeah. And that's okay too. You know, it, it felt very clearly delineated. And I have no problem being reminded of certain essential facts about Mike Ehrmantraut, facts that I could have told you probably before the episode even aired. Like, no matter where he is, no matter what he's doing, no matter how many times he's been stabbed or stitched up again or stabbed and stitched up again, if there is something broken, uh, if there's something that is shoddily done, he will fix it. You know, that he yes. will, it, it, as evidenced by that. By, that, the, um, by the windows, yeah. The windowsill. That's not breaking any new ground, as we've said before, about Gus cleaning the fryer last week. It's just exulting kind of in a well-known and well-understood and well-articulated character's personality. And there's something very enjoyable about that. And also kind of, honestly, kind of comforting. You know, yeah. you, you know, you know, you know where the floor is with the show always. And if the floor is just Gus Fring and Mike Ehrmantraut having a loaded conversation by a fountain, that's a pretty enjoyable 50 minutes of TV and everything else, all the highs are gravy. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting that they finally articulated what it is that binds Gus and Mike together throughout not only this series, but what will go on to bind them, I guess, chronologically within the show in Breaking Bad, which is this idea of revenge. Yeah, I wonder point. if do you have an idea of like what binds Jimmy and Kim together? Resentment, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I I think that that this idea that Kim, I mean, well, let, let's take it all the way back to the series because one thing that I promise you I'm not good at, and listeners have definitely ready to fact check me. I've enjoyed every episode of the show I watch, but something about the nature in which we've watched it. Um, you know, by taking a long time off and then catching up on the, I guess it was the third season. I, I don't remember a lot of things that have happened in the show in ways that I'm not proud of. But I will say that from the beginning when Jimmy was, you know, uh, in the mailroom or a, a clerk or whatever he was doing at the at um, Hamlin, Hamlin and McGill at the very beginning, she was the one who was nice to him. And she was the one who was nice to him partly because she was one of the few people there who hadn't had things handed to her. And she was one of the few people there who could relate to him on some level of being an outsider, feeling like he didn't belong or just being blue collar or whatever it was. And ultimately, I think that's the, the, the desire to, to get one over on these bastards. Yeah. Even when the bastard in question is a man who has lifted her up to professional heights that other people were denying her, who, you know, is so impressed by her genuine skill and acumen, which is real, that he's totally blind to this obvious grift that, our boy Dennis Butzikaris, which for some reason of all the names to want to say instead of an easy character name, 
<laughs> weird choice by us. Well, it sticks with you. I will say, for Dennis, real Dennis Butzikaris heads know that I have always known his name because I remember when that dude was playing Woody Allen in the Woody and Mia story, a telemovie from the 90s. So one that I am sure has not aged great yeah, and is not available is that, on any streaming services. Is that like sort of like a Paul Mazursky type romp or is it... Is no, it just like a... It, it was like, there was an, a period that you and I remember, well, that like in the 80s and 90s when something happened in the news... It was like oh, yeah. salacious they would or tabloidy. A, they would make a, a sort of movie of the week about it for sure. And, a, and, and like an up, a relatively upstanding network would do it, right? Like CBS. Mm-hmm. This wasn't like a lifetime thing. Anyway, so that's ultimately what's going to bind them. Of course, what's interesting is that what Kim would rather be doing, and this is where this is maybe projecting a little bit ahead to where we're headed. Kim wants to turn, you know, turn the tables on the bastards and uh, work out this resentment and stuff because all she really wants to do is help people. Mm-hmm. All she actually wants to do, but society and potentially debt, whatever it may have been, has put her on this other path. What Jimmy wants to do is keep turning the tables on bastards. He yes. just wants to keep going. Yeah, Jimmy's a a grinder, and and like he's probably like he lives off of the high you get, the contact high of action. And, and there's something that we're watching now happen in in slow motion, which is a thing to say about a show that moves as as gradually as Better Call Saul. What is the Howard thing doing to him? You know, and it, it it's almost like it feels like it's giving him some weird pleasure. Mm-hmm. You know, to have Howard dangling on a string and Howard not knowing what he Jimmy really thinks of Howard, what he's really done to him. You know, there, there's something quite perverse and interesting about that. And and again, it's a tribute to the show that something that psychologically rich is fifth on the call sheet for our conversation about it. For sure. Um, let's get into little fires everywhere really quickly. How about that? Set the table. I wish, so, by the way, if we were in our regular studio and super producer Kaya McMullen had a microphone at her disposal as opposed to being... she wasn't recording of, from the bottom of a cave, you mean? She's in a Google Hangout cave, self-muted right now. But right before we started recording, she dropped the bomb that she's read the book, Little Fires Everywhere, by Celeste Ng and enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And I would love to have some of her insight now because... I was only familiar with this book as a bestseller and something that a lot of people I know really liked and enjoyed and respected. Came into this otherwise totally cold, but so set the table for those of us who don't know a lot here, Chris. Yeah, so this... Take on Kaya's mantle. They put the first three episodes of the show up on Hulu already. I've seen several episodes. It's based on a 2017 novel by Celeste Ng, like Andy said. And if, um, if I had to sort of broadly say one thing that's really interesting to, to me about this on an industry level... It's that this is an example of a thing that the movies used to do very well, which was capture a, you know, they identify a project or a book that is really burning up the charts or really burning up bestseller lists and say, this needs to be fast tracked. People are really into it. The awareness of this thing is really high. And we think we can get really famous people to be a part of it. And that used to be things like The Firm or Bridges of Madison County or, you know, your Scott Turow books or, even mm-hmm. Michael Crichton books or whatever. But now we're seeing these things get translated into streaming television properties. And by that very nature, they're going to be slightly expanded. They're going to be kind of maybe more like the experience of watching a book. So I thought that that was notable because this show, while it has some very soapy elements to it, is definitely pretty expansive. You know what I mean? It has like a pretty uh, huge purview in terms of what it's talking about, like, 
things that are happening in society. Otherwise, you know, I think that we can really talk about this because, gosh, it is very television. It is very TV. And despite, you yeah. know, Lynn Shelton, Reese Witherspoon, Kerry Washington, Rosemary DeWitt, all these names that are kind of associated with it. I don't mean that as a pejorative term either. I just mean I was sort of struck by, I think probably because of watching Big Little Lies and, um, you know, some of the other things that I've seen Reese Witherspoon be a part of. It was sort of almost, dis- oh, and, and Morning Show, it was almost disorienting to see something that felt so... So much like save a few curse words and sex scenes could have been easily on ABC. Yeah, I mean, it even features Mr. Television himself, Josh Pacey Twitter Jackson, in the Adam Scott Memorial Reese Witherspoon's husband in underwear role. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I, you know, there's something that I was bumping on a little bit in the first episode of the show. And, and, I, and I should say up front, I don't, I don't think it's for me. Um, I'm probably not going to stick with it. But I do find it pretty fascinating from a, an industry point of view, and I and I commend the enormous talents of all the people involved in it. Um, which was that it struck some very very broad notes, which again is not a problem. Mm-mm. But it really came out at us in the first episode by saying this person is this, this person is that. Yeah, and for anybody who hasn't seen the first episode or any of the first three episodes, I'll just briefly set it up where it's essentially a period piece set in the late 90s in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Reese Witherspoon plays a character that I think you'd be broadly familiar with if you've seen some of her other type A. (laughs) Some of her other type A performances going back to election and up uh, up to Big Little Lies where she plays a journalist at the local Shaker newspaper who's got a family of four and a husband, a nice house, and is very active in the community and is very, like, kind of go-getter. And into this seemingly perfect life, even though it's not so perfect on the surface, you can see that she's got some issues with her youngest daughter, uh, comes Carrie Washington's character named Mia and her daughter Pearl, who drive into town and kind of insert themselves into uh, the Reese Witherspoon character Elena's life. And the show is about the ripple effects both going forwards and backwards of their intersection in their lives and some of the things that they have in common and some of the things that they don't have in common. So broadly speaking, I think elements like, you know, questions about race and class and gender come up. And it, it is a, I think, an issue-driven show and also a very plot, soapy, uh, melodrama-driven show. So it, it's trying to do a lot and it's still trying to like, you know, basically serve the best interests of the stars involved. So I thought it was really, it's kind of interesting to watch it operate in that way. Yeah, I think that's what I, all I wanted to say was it, it, it's taking big swings at big topics with big stars. And the way that it came out of the gate really actually reminded me of the way this would have been adapted into a two-hour and 26-minute movie in 1997. And I actually made me wonder if it would have been better served as that, you know, because the thought of multiple hours of the kind of like, this is a planned community. And then a moment later, someone's saying to Elena, like, you certainly don't leave anything to chance, do you? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. Someone's here to, to set a, dare I say, a little fire here in this very, very rigid. Little metaphors everywhere. Re- yeah. Retired fire retardant community. So, that's me just talking, you know, basically out my ass about the delivery system here, which is probably not at all fair or just. I do want to say, and I think Alison Herman touched on this really well in her piece that was up on The Ringer today. I mean, 
I don't know if anyone has taken advantage of what TV has become like Reese Witherspoon has. You know, obviously you could say that there are filmmakers, whether it's David Lynch being like, I'm just going to do what I want now. And suddenly it's in vogue and Showtime and the CBS Corporation will let me do it. Uh, or now we're hearing Netflix is also letting him do it, which is great for him. Or someone like Lynn Shelton, who 10 years ago was directing Mumblecore movies in the Pacific Northwest and is now tasked with basically being the producing director on this big glossy show and, and yeah. doing a really nice and job. And made an it. amazing movie. But, I think last year it came out, Sort of Trust with Mark Marin. that right. I definitely recommend if people haven't seen, so, they should check it out. So that's taking advantage of the medium in one way and the opportunities it provides. But for Reese Witherspoon to basically be like, okay, I'm going to try something here, analogy just that's coming to me as we're saying it. You talked about our personal basketball hero, Allen Iverson, a while ago. Allen Iverson is our favorite player because he was really, 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 really good at one thing. Two things. Scoring basketball and getting hit and getting back up again. None of those things necessarily have like statistical value now in this post moneyball era of basketball right people i think scoff at him he wasn't a you know his per rating wasn't good or whatever but he was really the best at doing the thing that he was good at and mm -hmm. it was dazzling to watch reese witherspoon i'm trying to think of another performer who is as keenly aware of his or her own gifts and what they are really really good at and what what they do that resonates with others a lot of actors run from the thing that they do, you know, which is what, and, and good for them, you know, if that's their, if that's their trip. Like Will Ferrell being like, you've seen me be Ron Burgundy. It's more interesting for me to try to do other things for a while, right? Great. Reese Witherspoon was just like, okay, so I played in a league that doesn't necessarily value the thing that I do as much anymore. I'm going to go to this other place where basically I can just throw pickup games. I can just have my own rucker two to three times a year. And do what I do. And in so doing, yeah. also lift up other people and lift up other projects and produce them and blah, 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 and give people opportunities and jobs. It's kind of unprecedented and amazing. And so to see her doing this again, my first thought was, okay, I see Reese Witherspoon is playing Reese Witherspoon. But it's not like she's being typecast by anyone other than herself. She mm -hmm. chose this property and wanted to play this part because she knew she could do the shit out of it. Yeah. It's interesting. No, it's a fascinating career for her because like, I guess to me... You know, I think that Wild was probably the last time that I was mm -hmm. like, oh, this is really kind of pushing the envelope about what I kind of see her as, as like a, a public-facing figure in terms of the kind of performance that she was giving. And even though she plays a slightly different person, like not quite the type A, I mean, she's very type A in Morning Show, but she's obviously like the foil that she has in that is Jennifer Aniston, so it's a little bit different. But yeah, I mean, it's it's it, watching her kind of... um kind of see the chessboard and also becoming this kind of like mini, you know, like this like new Scott Rudden where she's just like, I'm just going to get all these best-selling books and just move them into production on these streaming services. And, well, it's great to mention because Scott Rudin, one of the most powerful producers in Hollywood and has transitioned really well to TV and does great stuff in both mediums. But it was kind of a, I was going to say it was a joke. It's not a, not a joke. I don't know if people are laughing about this, but I think you and I would even note before we were even podcasting that when there was a great American novel published, um, Scott Rudin would invariably snap up the rights. Right. And a lot of those projects, whether they were Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections or Michael Chabon's Cavalier and Clay, never got made because you couldn't make them as movies. So they languished. And then eventually both of um, the corrections they tried to do on TV um, with Noah Baumbach and that 
famously didn't come together. Cavalier and Clay, Shabon is now doing himself for um, CBS, whether it's Showtime or All Access, I'm not clear. But the point being, so he's this powerful guy, but he, he didn't always get it done. And Reese is getting it done. And you mentioned Wilde, a movie I really liked a lot and I really liked her performance in. She won Best Actress for that, her second Oscar. And at that point, I mean, you wonder, did she look at it? She's got a happy family life. She's won two Oscars. She sees the game board of movies and it's like, I'm good. I'm good. I mean, she certainly didn't have anything else to prove sure. in that field and has, and has transitioned into this. It's, it's pretty amazing. Here's what I want to ask. And I mean this genuinely and sincerely. What are you watching for? Not like, what are you looking for it to do plot-wise or performance-wise, but when you've sat down to watch these two or three episodes that you've watched, what was, what were you enjoying? What was tickling you? Curious to see like how the stories get back, how they fill the stories out and what, where, where these two women came from and what led them to this place. And honestly, like it is a pretty involving melodrama. So I'm just kind of like, oh, like what happens next with this baby and what happens next with this fire and what happens next with like, I don't want to give anything away that that is in future episodes. I mean, I, but just, I find it like an involving escapist kind of piece of programming that isn't, you know, it isn't science fiction, but it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, I find it pretty distracting. You can give some things away. The title gives it away because if the, if the show was called, well, it's in the first scene that there's a fire. Yes. (laughs) If the show is called, where are these little fires? And you're suddenly like, dude, they're They're everywhere. Yeah. That's right. There's so many of these fires. But as we know, it could be like a, it could, it could be more metaphorical than that. Um, Ooh, look at you. Let's look get into at you. Let's get into Briar Patch a little bit because I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the sixth episode. We don't have like a official Briar Patch Thursday guest this week. People, if they're catching up on the show, I recommend that they go back also and listen to watch episodes where we've had um, people from behind and in front of the camera on. Uh, the pod talking about their experiences making the show with Andy. And then also there is like an official Briar Patch offshoot podcast called Zoo Town, which we haven't talked about in a while uh, that people can subscribe and check out, which is a really cool added experience to watching the show. This one, I just kind of wanted to ask, uh, and you know, if, if you haven't watched this episode yet, make sure you catch up. But what was it like shooting a huge action set piece? Hard. <laughs> it was really hard. Um, this one was the most challenging episode, I think, all the way across the board. Um, you know, it was marked, I think, when we first got the writer's room together, um, I described it as The Purge. Uh, I wanted yeah. to do an action episode. Um, people who've read the book know that none of these things happen. This is probably the one that has, I believe, Eva, who was on earlier, who is the co-EP of the show, looked at all the episodes and every episode had at least something from the book and this is the only episode that didn't there's not a single piece of this that is exists in the book okay um and so we wanted to do something big and we wanted to do something surprising and you know this was of all the episodes i probably learned the most from this one and one of the things that i learned was you know you can write and and i i'd begun to learn this in other episodes but this was really where the lesson hit which is you can write anything and you can dream as big as you want and you can, you know, you can put anything down on the page. And, you know, I was really supported by a studio and a network who were excited by everything coming out of the room. And then you get to Albuquerque and you sit with people like Richard, who is our production designer, who we spoke to on the podcast the other week. And you speak to people like Eric Crary, who is a great um, uh, co-EP on the show. And basically they're like, okay, no, but seriously, <laughs> because how are you going to do this? Okay, this entire thing is happening in the dark. This entire thing is happening at night. 
this entire thing is happening in a pre-existing location that we had established as Bane's, man- Bane's Mansion, where Jake Spivey lives, in the pilot, meaning we couldn't suddenly change it. We'd already sure. been filming there for multiple episodes. And as I think we said with Richard the other week, um, this is a functioning rental for events and an Airbnb. So we had very limited things we could actually do inside of it, let alone have a gun battle there. Um, so there are a lot of moving pieces. And in the spirit of making things possible within our limited budget, people like Eric and and Richard, you know, are nudging certain things and suggesting certain things. And if you move this piece here and you move that piece there. And then what I didn't really realize is if you start unraveling a sweater, um, pretty soon you're just going to have a pile of thread. Yeah. So all of that is to say it was wildly challenging. And we were shooting it concurrently with five as a block with the great Colin Buxy directing. And, you know, just super challenging across the board to be able to communicate the scale of something and communicate the geography of something and 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 uh, and pull it off. And, and I think it's a, you know, I, I think we were able to get away with it. And I think it's a testament to, to Raina McClendon, who's a brilliant writer who wrote the episode, and to Joe Leonard, who was with me for hours and hours and hours and hours editing and re-editing it. This episode definitely has the most um, reorganization of anything. So when um, you say reorganization, do you mean within the episode or pulling things yeah. from different places? Okay, so re- within the episode. So for example, there's a scene early on where Colder uh, is at the mansion and Brian Garrity's character, Gene Colder, and he has a scene with my friend Matt Oberg who plays Sergeant Mock, who's just pulled up. Yeah. That used to be in the third act and now it's in the first act. So things like that, like really pulling things and cutting things and restitching things together to try to get them uh, a little bit more clear and to, and, to, and to give them a through line. So, um, yeah, it, it was, it, I still sort of can't believe we pulled it off. It was really hard. This What's really it like hard. to have all those like kind of machine guns going off when you're filming those? Well, there's there's limits, um, especially when you're in right on the border of a very fancy neighborhood. One thing that people might not know about Albuquerque is that there are a lot of, I mean, every place has a lot of surrounding neighborhoods and towns, but there's a town called Los Ranchos of Albuquerque, and that's where a lot of the big, beautiful houses are. And another funny thing about Los Ranchos is that while Albuquerque has re- rebuilt itself as Tamalewood, uh, the mayor of Los Ranchos has continued to insist that no filming can happen in his community. Huh. So we found this beautiful house that we loved that was literally on the border of Los Ranchos. And so we definitely could not be shooting off even blanks after a certain hour. So we only had a couple couple takes of those. And and also just little things, like it's not actually a compound. So that wall that the guys are scaling in the beginning is made of uh, plaster and is about sure. as big as the frame, you know, <laughs> to, to kind of cheat it and stuff like that. So that, that was one thing. The, the other thing is like, getting Jay Ferguson ready to do a super intense fist fight <laughs> with a guy named Tate Fletcher who was in The Mandalorian. And oh, is really? Yeah. Professionally, he's in the first episode, professionally a stuntman and is twice the size of Jay. So, fun story about that. Jay was, and he wouldn't mind me saying this, so nervous about doing this scene that he was really struggling. And it was scheduled to happen, I think, on a Tuesday. And uh, on a Monday, we get to set and we found out that Rosario, who had been traveling back and forth um, to be with her father, who was unwell in L.A., wasn't able to get on a flight and wasn't going to be there till that afternoon. And so you can't lose a day of production. So guess what that means? It means get Jay in here. We're doing the fight today. Right. He later said that he was grateful that we surprised him. Because he didn't have to think about it because it wasn't like he had the time to be nervous. Yeah. And then it was over. That's great. 
All right. So folks can catch up with that on demand. You can get it on Amazon and iTunes. There's also, they can watch it through the, like the USA site, right? Yeah, you can go on usanetwork.com. There's a USA app you can get for your various devices. I hope people do. I'm really, you know, we were taking chances in episodes four, five, and six in a lot of directions. And I am really proud of where the season goes. I think our best episodes are the next four. Um, and I think I think it finishes strong. I, since we don't currently have the ability to have guests, I, I feel like maybe one of these weeks we could do like a Q&A. Sure. And talk about it more specifically if people have questions about things. Because I really wanted to have... And maybe we still will be able to, but I really wanted to have people like our brilliant costumer, Risa Garcia, or uh, our wonderful composer, my good friend, Giancarlo Volcano, just to talk about what they do and the amount of work that they put into each episode, which is really sure. sometimes hard to see. So yeah, we can open up questions for about, questions. Yeah, also from from fans of the show, if they have any questions about plot stuff, which I know we haven't really gotten too, too in the weeds on. We've mostly been talking about the production of it. So Yeah, and, um, I, and I feel like this might be a good time for people to if they have interest in how the sausage gets made, because last time I went down to the market, sausages were in short supply. So we can provide some of that. So I think what we'll do on Monday, if people want to get ready for that, is Dev's episode four. Uh, We'll do my version of talking about Westworld episode two. Uh, We can also touch on um, maybe the plot against America, which has been gone up on HBO. And we'll take care of whatever other business we have. And then we'll keep going on this Saul schedule of Thursdays. So, if he, And if folks have shows that they're watching or if they have shows that they'd like us to hit on, let us know because Andy and I have a little bit more free time uh, around the house. Uh, particularly if they are education-driven shows. Yeah, or movies, yeah that's a good you know, point. Set, set, in, set in the the heart of every home, which is the classroom. I would also say, I'm going to put this out to you, Chris, as a thought exercise the greatest thing so far today was Liam Gallagher tweeting oh and his brother God. Noel saying, look, mate, once this is all over, we should just get the band back together for a charity gig. It was also um, this only the second best Liam Gallagher headline <laughs> of the COVID-19 era, which the first one was, I, can't, I don't even know where I, I saw this, but it was Liam Gallagher worried he had coronavirus. Turns out his house was just too hot. Quote, it was scary and confusing. What a legend. So what I wanted to put that to you, and maybe we could put this out here to our fans and friends in the larger watch first. Pie in the sky. What completely unlikely cultural event or reunion or happening would you like to see come out of this? Yes. Once we are on the other side of this, and we are going to be on the other side of this, what would you like to see happen? What, who would you like to see brought together in the name of, hopefully in the name of charity? Yeah. Okay, so we can talk about that and a bunch of other stuff next week. Until then, thank you guys for listening, and I hope everybody stays safe out there. Be well, Baranskis. <laughs>